we kind of finished up last time I spoke on the instruction there in John 14 through 7, 16 that Christ gave His uh, disciples His parting teaching. And there was a great deal of emphasis on understanding and obeying uh, the words of God and what He had done for us, how He expects us to be friends. There's a family relationship with Father and Son and our bridegroom-to-be, but also He calls us friends. So we interface with God on many different levels, not just one. And He emphasized that throughout this context. And He finished up showing that there would be scattering, there would be trouble in the church uh, in their day, and it was a prophecy for today because many of the prophecies of the Old Testament project very clearly to the end of the age and the day of the Lord. So his words about the scattering that would occur uh, are very much for today. But he said he was not alone. The Father was with him, even as the Father with us is with us. And he closed it by showing that we would have tribulation, troubles, trials, difficulties in this world. But he said not to worry, but to be of good cheer. To have an upbeat attitude. Don't let it get you down. Don't be discouraged. Don't be frustrated. Be of good cheer. For He has overcome the world. And we are set here with His help to do the same thing He did. To overcome the ways, the thinking of this world around us. And to think as He thinks instead of our way of thinking. So that's the way He closed that instruction to them. Let's go to chapter 17 today, because he goes from teaching and instruction to a prayer to the Father. And it's a prayer that he had recorded for us. Christ prayed a great deal during his life. He prayed daily. Uh, All those daily prayers, probably several prayers a day, were not recorded. This one was. He gave the sample prayer there in Matthew uh, 5 or 6 or 7, wherever it is, 6, I think, uh, for us in the first teaching to the disciples. And then he gives this prayer at the end of his ministry here on the earth, three and a half years later. And this one is longer, and it is not just a sample of how to pray as it was in Matthew But here it is his own heartfelt prayer to the Father. And I think it is highly notable what he prayed about. Now, he was about to die. And he did not spend the time worrying about himself so much. Yes, he was under great pressure. And remember, he had asked the disciples to pray with him, or at the same time he was, and they opted to sleep instead. And it is easy for us to do that, to give sleepy time prayers that are not as heartfelt and as animated as they need to be sometimes. We're human, we fall short, we're weak, uh, we're tired, we're old, we're sick, we're this, we're that, and it's very hard for us to give at all times the kind of prayer we would like to give, Sometimes we just do the best we can, and that's all there is, Uh, you know. 
that's the way it is. But he prayed with great emotion here, with great feeling. These words spoke, and I'm going to use the word Emmanuel. He was, as they said then, uh, Jesus or Jesus or Joshua or however you want to interpret the way it should be read. And people come up with different ideas as we've discussed before. But that word, Joshua or Jesus in the Greek, simply meant God is salvation. And it was a very important word because he came to offer salvation. But he said in the future there in Matthew, they will call him Emmanuel. We took that, we looked into it and saw the prophecies in Isaiah 7 and 8 about Emmanuel and how he would be sent to us. And that term means God with us. And we've seen many prophecies which indicate that Christ is going to be with us here in the end, that he will turn his face back to us instead of away from us, and will forgive our sins and bless us once again But we turn to him with our hearts. So, it is with that hope that we use the term Emmanuel today, because we want him to be with us. We want him to be here soon, and we want it to be completely. And he does say there in Zechariah 2, speaking of this very end time that we are in, that he would come and dwell with us. Again, whether visibly or just his presence there remains to be seen, and it doesn't really matter as long as he's there and he's seeing to our needs. But let's notice then what the one we call Emmanuel said. He lifted up his eyes to heaven. Now, there are times to pray with your face down in repentance, or as the one sinner said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner, and could not even lift his eyes to heaven. So there are times of repentance, remorse, conscience, and so on, where we do have that emotion and that feeling, and we don't want to lift our hands, we don't want to lift our eyes even to God, because we don't feel that way at that moment. There are times when we can and should, depending on the emotion of the moment and the need of the moment. In this particular case, he had lived a perfect life. He had not sinned. He was now summarizing what had occurred, what his goals and purposes were, and what he had accomplished. So he lifted his eyes to God in heaven to address him more directly that way because he had accomplished what he had come here to do. I think Paul borrowed from this when he talked about how he had been the most wretched of sinners and not deserving to be called a saint. (coughs) And the things that he didn't want to do, he did. The things he did want to do, he didn't accomplish. And felt very badly about himself. And yet, years later, he had fought through it and he had finished the course. I think I said that last time. But Christ had done the same thing here. He had been tempted in every point, like we have been and are. And he had fought it off and had won. So he was able to lift his eyes to the Father, not in shame, but in accomplishment. And this is something that we all need to come to at some point in our lives. I know there are times when we might 
feel this way, and whether we do it in true righteousness or self-righteousness, we have to work through and judge. But he truly had accomplished what he had been sent here to do, and he could do it in total righteousness. Therefore, he could lift his eyes and have eye contact. You know how we are. If you're ashamed or bothered or embarrassed, you don't want to look somebody in the eye, especially God. And we'll look down. How many times have we dressed down our children they're looking at their shoes? Or us as well. <clears throat> but he was not feeling that way at this point. And I think that's important to understand as we approach this prayer. He lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father. He didn't go through a list of all the correct names uh, from the Old Testament or whatever we might technically figure out. You know, at some point it becomes a striving over words, and we are told not to strive over words. That is instruction from God. We can spend so much time striving over an exact name or an exact pronunciation or some of those things, and we can miss the point because we are focused on technical details. Not that certain technicalities are not needed. We do need as deep an understanding as we can get, but we need to be careful that we don't spend too much time striving over words. So he simply addressed him as Father. And that's what he had told us in the prayer back in Matthew. Address him as our Father. So he said, Father, the hour is come. I know what I'm facing. I know I'm about to die, to be uh, persecuted, to be beaten, to be humiliated, to have any pride that could have been there in a human being, which he did not have, completely overrun. The hour is come. I know the time is here. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you. So he says, what I'm about to go through, I realize, is for your glory. We need to share that emotion. He says that we will face trials, troubles, tribulations, persecutions, and trouble in this life. It is not for our benefit necessarily. It is that we might glorify God in the light that we provide, in the example we set, to glorify Him in the way that we live. Now, He had done that to this point, and now He was coming to the climax or the finish of what had been done, and the glorification that would come. He knew it was just on the other side of beating and death, three days in the grave. Then he would go to his Father and be glorified once again, as he had been in the past. So, as he worked through it and came to this point, you and I need to be doing the same thing, getting prepared, getting ready, that God may show his glory in us. We can look back decades ago in the church and realize that we were not ready to glorify God. We had not grown. We were not mature enough spiritually that He could use us to show His glory through. 
And this is an imperative that we must consider. God is looking for people through whom He can show His glory. Christ was a paramount example. He could show and did show His glory through Christ. Now He tells us, I want you to be just like He was. I want you to walk and think as He thought. Be just like Him. Be a clone of Christ Himself. So that... I may show my glory through you. He's instructed us to be a light to the world, set on a hill that cannot be hid. Now, I think sometimes we look at ourselves and think, I need to go hide. I'm not worthy of being shown to the world. But we have to get past that, brethren. We have to come to the point that God can look down and say, I want to show my glory through those people. Are we fit vessels for that? Are we ready for that? We want things to happen rapidly. We want things to occur. We keep watching the world and watching prophecy and trying to see when are these things going to come to pass that we read about. But the question are, or is, are we ready for God to show His glory and shine His light through. And we all would have to say, I'm not ready for that. So we should be spending this time getting ready. Working on it. Working on ourselves to have the character of God. And it does not come easy. We might get frustrated, we might get impatient, we might get a little discouraged at times, thinking, well, why don't these things happen? Why is it taking so long? And God might turn it around and say, well, why is it taking you so long to be ready? I want to use you. I want to glorify myself in you. Are you ready for that? Why aren't you ready for that? So, he has more questions always for us than we do for him. We can come up with questions for God. Why not this? Why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? It's too easy for him to turn it around and say, Why don't you? Here he had. Verse 2, As you have given him power over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. Now, we need to understand this in the context of the battle that had gone on. Satan is the prince of the power of the air and the present ruler of this world. And Christ never did take over and rule the world, did he? Not at all. Now, he qualified by defeating Satan after 40 days of fasting. He did not give in. He stuck to the Father and did not do things Satan's way, And even though all kinds of things were promised to him. He did not go that direction. So he qualified to rule. He has not come back to take that rule yet. But here he says, You've given your son power over all flesh. So... His qualification had been met. He could now, when the time is right, 
come and rule all flesh. And Satan will be bound for a thousand years and not be around to influence anyone. And that will be a huge step forward. Now, he had not given him many at that point to offer eternal life to, only a very few. But he had qualified to give eternal life to everyone when the time is right. And this is life eternal, <clears throat> that they might know you, the only true God and Emmanuel, whom you have sent. <clears throat> that is the summation of eternal life. Without that knowledge of God and that closeness to God that He has offered us, none of us can have it. But we have been offered it through Him. Through Him whom you have sent. He was sent here for that purpose. Sent here to begin to open eternal life to human beings. And not very many of them right now. It'll get bigger later. So he says then in verse 5, And now, O Father, glorify you me with your own self, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. There's a big argument going on within Church of God. People who are splintered off now from worldwide about how many beings there are. And huge debates going on here and there from city to city about how many beings there are. Now, there's only one true God in charge, the Father. But I think it's very clear here that there are two beings. So very clear. Why do we strive over words about one God? There's a God family, but there's more than one being in it. He was with the Father, then He came here and wasn't with the Father, and He said, Restore me to what I was before I came down here. I think that is a very elementary argument and so easily answered by so many scriptures. And yet, supposedly, truly intelligent people are all confused over that. Who was there to resurrect him? He was dead. And then he lived. So he was looking forward to that glory. I have manifested your name to the men which you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them me, and they have kept your word. Now, look what he's about to be going through and who he's thinking about. His mind is not on himself. His mind is upon his disciples, and we'll see that that includes us further down the line. He wasn't thinking just of those twelve men. He was thinking of you and me. And that's where his mind was. Utterly selfless in that sense. Now, yes, he had emotion and concern and wondered if he could go through it. And he even asked the Father in a different prayer if it could depart from him. But he says, not my will, but yours be done. So he had his mind on you and me, and he also had his mind on pleasing his Father more than pleasing himself. So when he says that we should esteem others higher than ourselves, 
that we should love them as we love ourselves. He set the perfect example here. Do we think about others in God's Word, in God's truth, in God's church, the way He did? Do we consider the rest of the world to come the way He did? Now they have known that all things whatsoever you have given me are of you. They realized he was a human being, and they realized everything he had, everything he was, came from the Father in heaven. That as a human being on this earth, they understood that he was not automatically like God. Even as you and I are not automatically like God, we are automatically carnal and human and walk with the works of the flesh. That's what's automatic to us. Walking in the Spirit requires a great deal of work, effort, and diligence. But they recognized him as a man. They understood that. And then it came from God. And he made sure that they got that point. For I have given to them the words which you gave me. He just turned around. Everything that the Father gave him, he passed on. And they have received them, and have known surely that I came out from you, and they have believed that you did send me. So he was not bragging about himself. He was self-important. He continually pointed them to the Father. And that's why we've had this long now series of sermons about honoring God. Where is my honor, he says. And Christ set the perfect example here of honoring his Father and saying everything comes from him. It isn't me, it is the Father who does it in me and through me. You can find that example many times in the Scriptures. And here he was reiterating it to the Father in this prayer. So this is, this is kind of a report to the Father after he had accomplished what he was sent here to do. <clears throat> I pray for them. Let that sink in. Christ was praying for those that God gave him. No man can come except the Spirit of the Father draw him. You could not be here today with understanding and the Spirit of God if God had not opened your mind and brought you here. It is impossible to understand the Bible without the Spirit of God. There are people, mind you, who have the Bible memorized. Every word. They can sit down and tell you everything it says without anything in front of them from Genesis to Revelation. There are literally people who have done that and had no understanding of what it meant whatsoever. There are monstrous volumes of commentaries written by very, very intelligent men who can sort detail out, who can understand a great deal, and yet they have no clue 
what the Bible is really even talking about. They don't understand salvation. They don't understand eternal life. They don't understand the plan of God. They don't understand the truth. And yet they write volumes and volumes of commentaries. And you, every one of you here who has the Spirit of God, understand more than Jameson or Fawcett or Brown or Matthew Henry or any of those. You understand far more than they do. But they were very intelligent, truly intelligent men. You and I could not write the commentaries that they wrote. But you could sit down with a pencil and paper, every last one of you, and you could put more in a five-page dissertation of understanding than they got out of 15 volumes of big books. You could make the truth clearer than they could. I don't care how much education you've had, or how well you spell, or how well you know grammar. You could put down more true substance, probably in one page, than they can in an entire commentary. Do you realize what we have? I pray for them. This is a very interesting next statement. I pray not for the world. Christ did not pray for this world. Now, I am very concerned about people in this nation and in this world and what they're going through and the lives that they're living. And I understand from the prophecies, most of them are about to die in the next few years. And it's sad. But what did Jeremiah tell us? He says, do not pray for this people. That is instruction from God. Do not pray for this people. We do not need to be asking that God bless America. Why would God bless America? We, were, we are not a godly people. We have abandoned God publicly and for the most part privately. And all of His precepts and all of His ways. And even we have struggles with ourselves and our minds and our attitudes and our words. Why would He bless America? I can't sing that song anymore. There's nothing to bless. We've gone astray. And Jeremiah says they're not going to repent. Don't even waste your breath praying for them. Now that sounds harsh if you just read it from Jeremiah and attribute it to him. But what about Christ the Savior himself saying, I pray not for the world. He still doesn't. He does not ask His Father in heaven to deliver the world as it is. Now, they both have a plan to ultimately deliver the world, but not until over 90% die. That's just the way it's going to happen. Satan will be a tool. Those tools of Satan who are running the world today have stated that they want to kill 90% of mankind. 
And that fits in with God's plan and purpose. God is going to use Satan and the new world order to do exactly what Ezekiel says, and Daniel and many other places in Scripture. Revelation. He's going to use them to do that. God is not going to have to do it. Satan is quite willing. And he is using human beings to fulfill his purpose. Just like with Job. God wanted certain things done with Job. So he just sicked Satan on him. God didn't do it. He instigated it, just as he is going to instigate this because of our international sins and our national sins and our personal and private sins. It's going to come. Now, what good when God has said all through his word, this is going to come, you cannot stop it, these people will not repent. You're wasting your time and energy if you pray for the people in this world. Christ himself did not do it. He said so right here. I pray for those you have called. Who's in danger of losing eternal life? Those in the world? No, they'll have their chance if they survive in the millennium. They'll have their chance in the great white throne judgment when they're resurrected to physical life, never having understood the truth. Right now, if God opened their mind to the truth, they would summarily reject it and be lost eternally. So he's not giving it to them now. So what good would it do to pray for them? Who is in need of prayer? You and me. We're the ones that need it. Because this is our chance at salvation. We only get one. So do the people in this world. Theirs is not now. Now is a day of salvation for the first fruits. It's not time for salvation for the world. Some of them are nice people, but they've not been offered the truth and the, truly the Spirit of God. And therefore, they are not candidates for the first resurrection. And God Himself did not pray for them. I pray for them which you have given me, for they are yours. You call them out. And therefore, I pray for them, because this is their opportunity. We need to pray for one another, as Christ did pray for us, because this is our opportunity. Don't waste your breath praying for the world. Pray for each other. Pray for the brethren of the church, wherever they may be, scattered across the earth. Now, we know each other here individually, perhaps. We don't know a lot of the people that God called out around the world, and it doesn't matter which church group they're in or whether they're alone on their living room couch. It doesn't matter. If God called them, opened their eyes to the truth, and they repented and received His Spirit then this is their only shot. So we need to be praying not just for ourselves, among ourselves, but for the greater body of Christ that is out there. We don't want to get too narrowed in and focused on just ourselves, even as Christ did not. We'll see that emphasized here in a moment. 
prayed for those you've given me, for they are yours. And all mine are yours. These aren't my disciples. These are your disciples. You know what he did before he went out and called the tax collectors and the fishermen? He prayed the Father. And he prayed very diligently, I'm sure. Lead me to the ones that you would have me teach as my disciples. I'm sure he prayed about it. And then he went out and selected them. And God showed him where to go and what to do and who to call. All mine are yours and yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. Grasp that. The glory that he was to have, that he was seeking, and his glory in the future <coughs> comes through those called out ones that God is going to give eternal life. Now, the Bible lists quite a few who are awaiting that life in their graves. The dead know nothing. David has not ascended, and no one has except he who came down. But it lists a lot of people who have made it and are awaiting their resurrection. And it tells us to do all we can to pray to be accounted worthy to escape these physical things, but also to be worthy to be a part of the kingdom of God. When is His glory going to show? It's going to show when the work is actually completed. This was preliminary. This was the first phase of His glorification, was to come down and turn these carnal human beings into Spirit-filled disciples of the Father and of Himself. And He would be glorified. They went on to quit being cowards, to quit being liars, and to become more like He was, to be Spirit-filled and preach and teach and set the example for the world. And many became converted as a result of God's Spirit being poured out from Acts 2 on. And Herbert Armstrong came and did the same thing, in a, in a way, without the Father and the Son calling him and him having to swallow his wife's religion and prove the truth. And God opened his mind. Without God, that work could not have been done. God had to call someone to give a calling message, and that's what happened. But it didn't finish the job. Just as Christ only finished, to a certain point, the job with the disciples. And they were still as carnal as the day is long until the Holy Spirit came 50 days after He promised it. Then they began to understand truly. All of mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. So His glory comes through us. As He finishes the work in us, and He can glorify us, there's something to make the angels jump for joy for sure, because the work will be completed, be done. And now I am no more in the world. He says, I'm about to leave this world, about to die and be resurrected and come back to you. But I'm leaving them behind. 
I'm leaving them on their own, except through prayer and the connection with us. So I'm not going to be any more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your own name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. Now he tells us, 1 Corinthians 12, there's to be no schism in the body, no division. They were all to be perfectly, fitly joined together. But we cannot be separate from one another. The eye can't be separate, the hand, the foot, or anything else. We are to be one body, perfectly joined together. You have all the different parts of your body, but they're all joined through a central nervous system. They're all joined through your mind, your brain, and the nerves that emanate from it. So that there is no part that is on its own. I can move my foot over here because my head tells me to. just does it, doesn't it? My hand will raise if my head tells it to. It doesn't usually raise itself unless something in here tells it to do something. Fitly joined together. And he tells us we are to be one as he and the Father are one. They have no disagreement. They have no separate thoughts of their own apart from each other. They are that close. How are we doing? We are not perfectly fitted and joined together yet. We still argue, we still fight, we still have wounded feelings and hurt pride, ego, and difficulties among ourselves, do we not? Well, if those things exist among us, then it shows that there is still growth that has to occur. The pride has to be swallowed. That other people's feelings need to be considered, not just our own. We have a goal here, to be fitted together as the Father and Son are one. Now, this was his prayer, right? This is what he prayed to the Father. This was very, very heavy on his mind. Now, he knew that these disciples to this point, and even at the Passover, just before this, they were arguing over who was the most important, who was the greatest, who was the most righteous, who whose way of doing things was best, <coughs> whatever might come up, they argued about. And it all had to do with the transcendency of self. I am above you. Smarter, or more intelligent, or do things better, or whatever it might be. And we still have those things among ourselves. Even husbands and wives are not perfectly joined together so that there's no argument or frustration between them. They think differently enough and disagree with one another enough that it is not perfect peace and harmony with anyone. But that is Christ's prayer for us, that we become that way. Are we working toward agreeing are we working toward 
my understanding surpassing yours. That's one reason we have this study going on that I ask you to be a part of, is so that we might determine what is true and what is not in terms of the true Jerusalem and where its place is, where the real Zion is, where Christ walked the earth, and so on and so forth. It is a subject that is important. When the question arises, we need to know. Now, we can work at proving whether these things be so, as the Bereans did, or we can dissent and have a negative approach and not look into it. As I said, I was accused of not looking at both sides. I'd looked at the other side for years. I accepted the other side for years. I am now looking at the other side, not just the one side that we had all looked at all that time. It is those who are clinging to what they have always believed and what the world has taught them who are not willing to look at the other side. Now, maybe the original way we all looked at it and the world looks at it is right. But then again, maybe it's not. And we're here to prove all things one way or the other. Some will ignore it. Some will denounce it. And anything we are ignorant of, we tend to disregard. But we are not to remain ignorant, are we? We need to open things up and understand them. I just got a paper yesterday from someone I'd never heard of. About, I don't know, I didn't look at the page numbers, but it was probably... 30, 40, 50 pages to prove that I'm wrong about Passover and that we're wrong about it. So now I've got to wade through it again. I don't want to, but i got to. i got to look at that side of it again. i got to see if the guy has right information or wrong. I don't want to go there. Would somebody like to go through that for me and prove it one way or the other? And then report to me. I'd appreciate it. I, I didn't think so. No, I'll have to go through it. And then if he's right, we'll have to change it again. All that matters is the truth. Not whether we like something or don't like something. And that is a great pressure upon us, isn't it? To find the answers to why... God did to the church what He did to it so that we might correct it and get it right. Now, we can go on not examining this or examining that or something else. Is that right? We thought we had the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, and worldwide, and everything that Herbert Armstrong said was God-breathed. Well, why did He keep Pentecost on the wrong day for decades? Which day was it? Sunday or Monday. He kept it decades one way and decades the other way. Did he grow? Did he learn something? What's right? People say, well, I don't know about that. Well, if you don't know about it, maybe you better look into it. Because we're supposed to find truth in everything. Now, God predicted that, didn't he? He said, I will send Elijah at the end to bring forth 
all truth. Now that's difficult. And if God has made such a great point of that and said that is going to happen, then we need to be thinking that way, don't we? Not just going on assuming this or assuming that or figuring, well, it must have been right. <clears throat> well, what if it wasn't? What if it was wrong? Don't we want to get it right? We obviously didn't get it right or we wouldn't have been spewed from God's mouth. So now it is incumbent upon us to get it right and to do it right. And that takes effort. God did say, straight is the way and narrow, difficult to eternal life. Now, if you think it's a breeze and it's easy and you can just go on the way you are without fighting and clawing and grasping at truth and following truth, then you don't even understand what it's about. <clears throat> Somebody told me a few years ago, well, now I understand grace, and now it's easy for me. No, if you understand grace, law and grace, you'll never say it's easy. Why does it say so many times in the Bible that it's difficult and hard? It is. It's not easy. So if you're going through and it seems easy, then you don't even know what you're doing or you're not working at it one or both. Because it is not easy to be like God. Not a bit easy. But He here is praying for us. And He still talks to the Father. Is our intercessor? Is our mediator? <coughs> Have mercy on them. I've been there. I know what it's like. I know what they're going through. So he's praying, asking the Father. That's what praying means. Asking. Talking to. He talks to the Father now in person, side by side, as opposed to being on the earth and praying to Father in heaven. Now he talks to him very directly, eyeball to eyeball. But he's saying the same things now that he was then. Keep them together that they may be one as we are. No shadow of turning, no dissent, no disagreement, all working perfectly together in a coordinated body. While I was with them in the world, verse 12, I kept them in your name. While I was here, I minded the store. I took care of it. I corrected attitudes. I worked on them. I told them what ought to be, how it ought to be. <clears throat> I kept them in your name. Now he was leaving. Those that you gave me, I have kept. I didn't fail, he says. And none of them is lost, but the son of perdition, Judas, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Now he had lost them from the group. Uh, he killed himself. Does that mean Judas is going into the lake of fire? Not necessarily. Obviously, Judas had never been converted. These other men were not yet converted either, were they? They were still arguing and fighting among themselves. They did not have the Holy Spirit yet. Wouldn't come till over 50 days later at this point. So he said, we preordained, we knew when we called Judas, you called Judas, that he would be the one that would betray. 
So that was planned ahead of time. Poor Judas didn't know, but that's the way it was. So they expected that, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. And now come I to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. The fruit of the Spirit, one of them is joy. Now, he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He saw a lot of evil and frustration around him. And yet, there was the indwelling of God's mind and spirit that gave him joy in spite of the trauma that was around him on every side. And that's what we have to do. We have to dwell on that which is good, that which is right, that which is uplifting. We're not supposed to be negative. I could go to a lot of scriptures to show you that. We're to be of good cheer, as he said in chapter 16, verse 33. We're to be positive in approach, not negative. And a lot of people, by dint of background and personality, tend to have a negative approach. Maybe light has made them cynical in some ways. But we are to overcome that. We are not to be negative. We are to be positive. We're not to dwell on the negative. We're to dwell on the positive. If we look at the negative in people, we will become negative. Because people have things wrong. If that's what you think about is people's faults, their problems, their infractions, their sins, their imperfections, you will have a negative approach to life. So what does he say? He tells us, I could go back to scriptures, that we're to look upon all those things that are pure, those things that are good, those things that are right. You say, but people misinterpret and take it out of context. They say, well, this is the truth. He is that way. No, that's not what Paul was saying at all. Just because something is true doesn't make you need to dwell on it. It doesn't need, mean you need to put that person down for it. You need to pray that they overcome, grow, and be what they need to be. But we get so judgmental and so condemnative of each other and each other's faults and problems that we become negative in our approach. There is no room for negativity. Is there any negativity between the Father and the Son? Not one iota. None. And we are to come to be that way. That is a challenge. It's a huge challenge to overcome our negative, sarcastic, backstabbing, gossiping ways. Our negative approach, our putting down of one another. What right do we have to put each other down? We have no right whatsoever. We're the children of God. We are called of God. <coughs> we are called to be one as the Father and the Son are. 
And yet daily, we let our minds dwell on other people's problems and faults and not fulfilling the full standard of Christ. In our minds and in our mouths, we have work to do. If no man offends with his tongue, he is a perfect man. There's only been one of those. We offend with our tongues daily. It's sad. You think on the good, on the pure, on the right, the positive, not on the negative. Now, I realize we have a problem right here. Because we read the Word of God, which is His standard, and we expect each other to live up to it. And when we see each other fall short of it, or imagine that they are falling short of it, or suspect they are falling short of it, or however we come to that conclusion, then we tend to think negatively. Now, Christ does not do that. He prays for us in a positive way. Help them, Father. They're yours, and you gave them to me. Help them. Strengthen them. Empower them. Make them as we are. So instead of thinking, so-and-so sure falling short, did you hear about that? Do you suspect what I suspect? Where do we get this? It comes from Satan, the devil, and our carnal human nature is where it comes from. It doesn't come from God. He doesn't have that attitude. He doesn't think that way. Christ is showing that here. I don't think that way. I'm praying for them, Father. Help them. Strengthen them. That's the attitude we need to have toward one another. I want my joy fulfilled through them. Does it help someone's joy when we whisper about them? How does that help their joy? Does it make them joyful when they hear it? Verse 13, And now come I to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I read that. I have given them your word. And the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. He was in it, but he was not of it. He thought differently than it thinks. We get sucked in and think an awful lot like this world thinks, and the people that are in it, and the culture around us, instead of thinking like God thinks. I pray not that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. Don't let them be subjected to Satan. Don't let them give in. Keep them away from him. They've got to live in this world. So help them. That's the attitude we should have about each other. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through your truth. Sanctify means to set aside for a special use, a purpose. Sanctification sounds like a two-bit spiritual word, but it just really means set apart, set aside. Set them apart through your truth. Your word is truth. 
This book, this Bible, is the truth. There are people who think it's not complete, but it is. God wanted other books in this Bible. They would be here. Do we really believe that He had the capacity to give us, in this book, the inspired Word of God, and that it didn't need other books? This is it. It's complete. This is where we look for truth. Now, we're set apart by truth to be different than the world, to be His. That's why we need to study the Bible. We did it by rote years ago. I, you know, we were instructed, you've got to pray and study at least a half hour each a day. So we might put in our time. <clears throat> were we really, truly seeking truth? Or were we just reading it because we're told we're supposed to? Do we need to? Do we recognize the need for it? Do we realize how weak and how carnal and how human we are and thereby how much we need to look into this Word. It's what sets us apart. We're told not to let any of His words drop to the ground. There's lots of words here. Do you know them all? Do you let any of them drop to the ground? Or do you find yourself sometimes with your mind over here somewhere else completely out of sync with this? It wandered off somewhere else. Well, you know what goes through your mind music-wise? The music you listen to. Have you ever noticed how it is after the Feast of Tabernacles when we sing hymns every day, that for days and weeks after the feast, you'll have the hymns running through your mind? And then if you go listen to pop or country or something else, rock, that those are the tunes and the words that go through your mind, because that's what you're putting in there. So that's what goes round and round in there. <coughs> Think about it. Your word is truth. As you've sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. So God sent him down here to live a perfect life, to set an example to the world. And he said, now I've come down and I've taught them, and I want them to do the same thing. Not act like it, think like it, look like it, but look and think and be like us. I've set them there for that purpose. There's work to do. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself. He set himself aside to do what he did expressly for you and me. That's why he did it. There was no reason for him to give up being God, leave his father that he was so close to, <coughs> and come down here and live. Excuse me for a little water. To come down here and live with all the frustrations and difficulties that being a human being encompasses. There was no reason for that, except for you and me. That's what he did it for. Now, we are here to set an example to the world as God's witnesses at the end that he is God. So, even as he came to be a witness to the whole world, the greatest witness... 
He has called us now to come out of the world, be different from it, and be His witnesses in the end to the whole world that He is God. That's what He's called us to do. Essentially the same job He did. Except we can't save the world because we need salvation through Him. But we can show that since He did this, we can do it also, and by extrapolation, so can you. But salvation is available or will be made soon. That is why God is going to give us here, I believe, physically, the Garden of Eden, a change in climate, a change in everything. Now, it hasn't happened yet, and I think that there's a reason for that. We're here to learn that we can't create it ourselves, that we have to look to God. We have no wall of fire. We have no covert from the heat yet, as it promises us in the book of Zechariah at the end. Because we're here to learn some hard lessons first. But then when the world and Satan do their thing, God is going to do his thing in a very small way as an example against Satan and the rest of the world. So when the time is right, it will happen because that's what the scriptures say. You and I need to be spending the time in the meantime coming to do what he said sanctified through the truth for the sake of the world. Well, it doesn't do any good to pray for it, but we can be a witness against it and a witness for the glorification of God. Let's see that now in verse 20. Neither pray I for these alone, not just these disciples that I have sitting around me, But for them also which shall believe on me through their word. They went out and preached to people on a local level audibly. But they also wrote down the words of this book, which are sermons put to pen and ink and paper. And he preserved... Their sermons, their teachings, their words in this book for us. So his prayer did not just include them, but it extended all the way down to us who can read what James, Peter, John, Jude, Paul wrote. And he prayed for us as well. That they, those who read what you write, he said, or that which you preach, that they all may be one. As you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. So we're here to be witnesses that God is God, and Christ is Christ, and that he has been sent because he is able to work through you and me to set a light before the world. That's what we're called to do. It isn't time now to preach to the world. The two witnesses will do that. The rest of the church, the faithful remnant that he calls together, will do their preaching by light, by example, by living a godly way and having God's blessing come down on them. Then he will send two out 
to preach it and to throw it in their face as a witness against them because they will not accept what God is doing. And then they will have to die because they will not accept that witness of God. It has become abundantly clear that if two were to go out and preach a witness to the world, that they have to have something to point to as a contrast to what the world is doing. And that contrast must be a people who are seeking God with all their heart, obeying His every desire, His every wish, and being blessed by Him. <clears throat> How do you preach something to people if you don't have anything to point to that is better, that is what it ought to be? What good does it go do to go out and say you should ought to obey God? What good does that do? Anybody can preach that. doesn't do any good. You've got to have faithful witnesses that you can point to and say, there's where it is. Those people are blessed while you're starving to death. Those people are being blessed by a loving, almighty, kind, heavenly Father while you have the new world order smashing your nose in the ground. Now, which way are you going to live? Or will you die instead? And they will. Sadly, the prayers need to be for each other, as Christ prayed for us, not pray for the world. It will do no good whatsoever. It is already set in stone that they will not listen. But we have to set the example for them so that there is something to point to to see the difference between Satan's world and God's world. See why God doesn't want us to look like the world and act and think like the world? We've got to act and think like God and be like God. And we need to pray for each other because every last one of us is way far from what we need to be as an example and a witness of who God is. That's why he prayed this prayer that they may all be one as we are, that the world may believe that you have sent me. Through our example, the world is to understand that Christ was sent. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one. No shadow of turning, no disagreement, no argument, no fight, no bad attitudes, no negativity, but positive, upbeat, caring, loving, sharing attitudes that we should have one for another. That is what God lays upon us. It's what He desires of us. We have to accept that challenge. This is more important by far than prophecy or healings or all those things mentioned in 1 Corinthians 13. It is the love of each other in Christ that is more important than all of everything else put together. We can understand all prophecy, all doctrine. We can understand all Greek words, for that matter. And it doesn't mean a thing unless we get rid of the negativity and learn to love each other and to think highly of one another and esteem each other better than ourselves. 
to value their opinion and how they think above ours. It's what Paul tells us. There's a major challenge here to get rid of our negative approach like the world has and think like God thinks and become one as they are. But he says that he wants us to have that same glory. I in them and you in me, that they may be made complete or mature, perfect in one, all together cohesive, close, with that shadow of turning. And that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. That is to be the relationship we are to have. To have the same love of God from Him to us that He had in His Son, and to have the same love one for another that he had, the Father had for him and he had for his original disciples. And he's throwing us in the loop. Those who hear what those apostles have to say. And one of them's writing to us right here, the Apostle John. <clears throat> that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. God the Father, he says, loves us the same way he loved his only or first begotten Son. It's hard to imagine when you read the Scriptures about how close they are and to realize that God the Father has the same feelings, the same emotions, the same love for us that he had for the first Son. He does not play favorites, does he? Same love. See how we should honor our Father in heaven? We should have the same love for Him, and love is expressed in our responsiveness, our obedience, our love for His way that He wants to share eternally. That's the feeling He has for us. Can we return it? Father, I will that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am. He says the bride will always be with Christ once she is resurrected and glorified. Never be apart from him again. And that was his prayer. I want them where I am. I want to be with them all the time. That they may behold my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you. doesn't pray for the world. The world doesn't know him. But I have known you, and these have known that you have sent me. And I have declared to them your name, and will declare it. We need to honor our Father. Declare his name by mouth and by the way that we live. That the love wherein with you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. He wants that same love between the Father and the Son to be in us. Not to be diminished at all. To be just like they are in our relationship one to another. Now that's hard, because every one of us has faults, 
weaknesses, warts, problems of any and every kind, don't we? Attitudes. But His goal and purpose and desire is that we get over that and love each other the way He loves us. Now that's a plateful, so we'll stop right there.